If you'll open your Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 5, we'll continue on our study of life on God's terms, that is, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus told us that the law is what he came to fulfill. And because so much of what is taught in the New Testament is explaining what was said in the Old, I'm not here, Jesus said, to get rid of the law. God forbid. For by the knowledge of the law is this and that and thus and so forth. And he came to fulfill the law as well as to set his people free. Now, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, he begins talking about the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law. You know, there's a letter of the law, what it says as a legal statement. And then there is what he shows us in the rest of this chapter, five or six references to the Old Testament that are applicable as he meant it to be understood for us in the New Testament or the New Covenant. He begins in verse 12 with the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments and saying, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. That's Exodus 20 and verse 13. Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Well, that's pretty simple for many of the legal Israelites or the Pharisees, it was just homicide of any sort. I mean, to kill is to kill, whether accidentally on purpose or whatever. It's just killing is killing. And Jesus said, come to give us the spirit of the law. He said, but I say to you. Now, remember, this is God in human flesh speaking. Emmanuel, God with us and so forth. And this is how Jesus wants us in the new covenant to know how to make application of this sixth commandment in our life. If he wanted to abandon it, he would have said, you have heard that it was said by them of old, but I say to you, that no longer applies. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say it was done away. He didn't, he didn't remove it. He said, you've heard what the sixth commandment is, as well as all the other ones. But here's the deeper meaning. This is what God wants us to understand. He said, whosoever is angry, verse 22, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment or of being judged. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And that's not easy to understand because people are referred to as fools throughout the Bible. Jesus did, Paul did, the Old Testament does. Psalm 51, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So we need to understand that. Otherwise, you become very legal in how you see that, and you begin to label things that shouldn't be labeled the way they are. That's why teaching is so important. That's why it's so important for us to understand what this means. Verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has aught against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while you are in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. 
Verily or truly I say unto you that you shall by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. We don't understand these things like reka or farthing, but the principle will be clear because it involves how we relate to each other. We are no longer the kind of people who can demand. Uh, we're the kind of people who turn the cheek because this is a different covenant than the old one. Now let's go back to the first part about thou shalt not kill because there's been many debates, many arguments, many stands taken, fingers pointed, blood shed because of what is said here, thou shalt not kill or People's lives have been spared when perhaps they should have been judged. You read in the Old Testament, you'll find that God was not against capital punishment. But killing here is better understood in the Hebrew language by the word murder. It's the unlawful taking of another human being's life. The Bible in basic English translates it, Do not put anyone to death without cause, in Exodus 20, verse 13. So he is saying here that there is room for killing. Now, we're talking about the Old Testament. Are you all still in here? The Old Testament does not say it is wrong for any reason for a person to be, have his life terminated because there are several places and times and instances and ways and reasons and causes for a life to be terminated or for a person to be put to death, like stoning. They stoned in the day of Jesus, didn't they? Have you ever heard of that? Not once or twice. They even spoke of stoning in the Old Testament, stoned animals. Achan, you remember Achan had, was, uh, was under a pile of stones because he took some gold and some wearing apparel from Jericho's fallen walls. And it was such a judgment against him that it was commanded that he be stoned. The man picking up sticks to bake a little fire. Picking up sticks. Picking up sticks. Breaking is such the Sabbath day amongst, in front of everybody else, God commanded that he be put to death. So it's not wrong as you read this. While we're in a different time and a different covenant, but we read this because Romans 15 and verse 4 said, The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. So we're not supposed to gloss over this. We read this and we're supposed to learn exactly what he's talking about or what we're supposed to see. Matthew 19, just a few pages from where you are, Matthew 19 and verse 18 to show you where it's murder. Jesus said to the young man that said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why call thou me good? Nobody's good but one, that is God. And he saith unto him, uh, which are the commandments? And Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, the first one. He was telling us what the sixth commandment said. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. So you have to define what murder is. See, I think definitions are important in Christianity for just about everything you do, every stand you take. You have to have definitions. As I told one of my youngsters one time, I said, you know, the problem with you and the way you live and the attitude you have about this or that is that you don't have definitions in your life. You don't define things. For example, you don't know what sin means. You don't want to know what sin means. You don't want to know. You don't want a definition of evil. You don't want a definition of uncleanness. 
or any other thing that defines your lifestyle because that would bring guilt. And people do whatever they can today to avoid guilt because guilt is that thing on the inside you can't get rid of. You can dull its senses for a while with drugs or something else, but it never leaves. Only God can remove it. And guilt is something that plagues people who have mental problems. They can't get over it. They can't get around it. They can't get past it. But if you have definitions and you're a Christian and you want to define what's right and what's wrong, I think we need that. Don't bypass my feelings. Tell me what it means. Tell me what it says and tell me what it means. Give me a chance to understand it for myself. But tell me what it means. Define it. Murder, for example, is is defined as the unlawful killing of another human being with malice aforethought. You kill a person and murder a person because you planned on it, premeditated. Murder. It was a state of mind that distinguishes murder from other forms of homicide, such as manslaughter. You know, there's people that accidentally kill people today. The Bible addresses that too. The Bible has a lot to say about what if one of your animals gores another man that he dies and then your animal shall be put to death? But if you didn't warn people that you had a bad, a bad oxen, you get the axe. Everything had to be considering other people. If you got a bad dog that bites, you better either chain him up or tell people he bites because if he bites somebody, then I guess they get to bite the dog back. It was eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the way God was teaching his people how to relate to each other. Justice was a big word in the Bible. Being just and right legally, by law. Remember, when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about a nation that was under a theocracy. A nation that was God-ruled. There's been no government like that since, and Christianity cannot govern any nation today. People talk about America being a Christian nation. We are a Christian in the sense that many of our founding fathers believed rightly in God. I don't know how many of them are actually dedicated, deep-walking Christians. But there's references to God made in our Constitution, references to God made in our coins, and in a lot of things, prayer before assemblies in Congress used to be in schools. I used to have prayer with my basketball team all the time. I don't know if they've outlawed that or not. But there was the idea and the mindset that God is present He is to be honored and respected, even whether you believe in him or not, or you honor or follow him or not, you should live that way. But under a theocracy, God said, I'm your God. Now, you can't see me because God is spirit. The spirit has no form, but he's there. He's always there. There's nowhere on the earth that God has to go to be there. He's always there. He's everywhere. He is at all times everywhere because he's God. And as being talking about how we relate to each other. He says, man is made in the image of God. And you're to rule the earth on my behalf. You're my ambassadors on the earth and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the principle of anger and murder, God says, there are things I want you to understand. When people transgress me, transgress my way, or they have so become wicked and abominable that they are wicked to the extreme like all the inhabitants of Canaan, all the Jebusites and the Havites and all those people, they were wicked to the extreme. They had turned their back on God. They said, well, how would they know about God? Well, Romans 1 says that God made himself clear in creation so that they're all without excuse. And they 
cut down trees and made idols. They hired a craftsman who made out of a rock, made some kind of a figurehead, some gross, weird-looking thing, and they called it a god, and they prayed to it. They sacrificed their children to it. They had orgies in front of me. It was so vile and wicked. Then they turned away from the one true God, and they worshiped creatures made of stone and a piece of wood cut down the forest. And God said to those people, when they came into the land, he said, now the land that is before you is rich and fertile. Even these heathens have been blessed with their ability to farm and dig wells and so forth. And you're going to get a land that's already planted, wells are already dug. I'm going to bless you as you go in. But everywhere you go, you'll have to take the land. And even God said, I will be with you to help you drive them out. Just as when God told Lot to get out of Sodom, when he did get out of Sodom, he, God, rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed the entire cities of the plains. How many of you know that God is just and fair in everything that he does? He can do no wrong. And when he sent his people in, he said, I want you to destroy them all. All of them. Would you turn with me briefly to Deuteronomy or Longley? Deuteronomy chapter 19, for a moment anyway. Deuteronomy chapter 19, and here's what he said. This whole chapter has to do with, well, among other things, capital punishment. In verse 1, When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God giveth you, and you succeed them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities as called cities of refuge. Now, these cities of refuge will be for those people who have taken a life, but not on purpose. It was an accident, like the head of a hammer fell off. And as it did, it hit the person you're working with, chopping wood, and it killed him. Now, his family would have a right eye for eye and tooth for tooth. His family would have a right to take your life. But if he fled to the cities of refuge, there were three of them, three of them on this side of Jordan, three on the other side. And if he fled to one of those cities, they couldn't come in and get him. But if he came out of the city, if he got tired of being in the city all the time, got cooped up, and he came out of the city, they were waiting for him. If they captured him, they could kill him. But as long as he stayed in the city of refuge, he was safe. But they were allowed to kill this man if he came out because, well, that was the law in verse 21. Of Deuteronomy 19, that was the law. But he told them in verse 9, If you will keep all these commandments to do them, which I command thee this day, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And, and he said, I'll give you three more cities. That would make six. So that innocent blood be not shed in thy land. Now, blood will be shed, but he says not innocent blood. Again, do you believe God is just and fair? Do you believe that when God reaches a judgment against somebody for their sinfulness that he is fair and just? Who could tell God he's not fair? What right would we as creatures made have any right to tell the Creator who made us what he can do and whether or not what he does is right or wrong? Who can do that? It's just like the potter and the clay. He asked, hath not the potter power over the clay to make of it whatever he wants? The clay has no complaint. I thank God that he made out of us vessels of honor. If not every vessel was an honorable vessel, I got nothing to do with that. 
And if God said, this is the way walking in it, and I say, I don't want to walk that way, then God has a right to judge me. Let me get off the subject just for one moment. Put your finger wherever you are in Deuteronomy 19 and turn to Romans chapter 1. Towards the end of that chapter, Romans chapter 1, and here is a principle. While they're not destroyed, they shall be. Verse 21, he says, When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and in their foolish heart was darkened. Now, we're talking here about heathens. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto a man or birds or some four-footed beast and creepeth some weird thing, and, and they worshipped it. Therefore, therefore, because of this worship, God gave them up, verse 24, to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And he gave up and said in verse 20, 26, he gave them over to their vile affections. Even their women did change the natural use of that which is against nature. And likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Now, in the Old Testament, they would have been stoned. Now, we're not in the New Testament here, but he is telling us, you know, God saw this. He reached a judgment against this. And verse 28, to those in the New Testament here, but who, but who are acting like them then, we got a society full of this. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness. This sounds like TV's programs. Full of envy, murder. Debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Now, those are pretty bad things. Would God have a right to judge all of that? Not because they didn't know better. The Bible said they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's like, I don't care what he said. I don't care what you tell me about God. I'm only in life for a while. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to have a good time. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God. And there's a world full of heathens out there who say, well, I know where I'm going. Even the soldiers in the Civil War, you know, they said, see you in hell, Johnny Reb. They knew where they were going. I mean, you didn't have to tell them. They knew by the way they lived, the mistakes they are willingly making. They're going to perish. And a righteous God had every righteous reason in the world to reach that kind of a judgment against people who knew better. And face up, nothing has changed. That's still true today. There was a harsh judgment against hard hearts, stiff necks, and implacable people. There was always this anti-against-God stand that these people made. And God judged them. And when they went into Canaan's fair and happy land, I guarantee you that when they went into the land, these people cared not for anything of their God. They called upon their gods like the Philistines. And God sent his people in and he said, now, you go in and you destroy them all. Numbers 35. There's many places in the Bible where he refers to this, but in Numbers chapter 35, destroy them all. 
Men, women, children. Leave none alive. And his people went in there not because they didn't like these people. They never met them. They didn't have a clue who they were. They went in there. They weren't in there trying to, trying to do them wrong because of their feelings against them. They just came out of slavery and 40 years of disobedience finally got them to the promised land. And God says, now, you've got to clear the land. You're my executioners. God could throw fire down from heaven, I suppose, and get rid of all of them. But then the, his people wouldn't learn much about how to trust God if he did that. So day by day, step by step, little by little, hornet by hornet, they were to go into the land trusting in the Lord and eliminate all the enemies of God. Because here's the deal. God said, if you leave any of them, remember this? If you leave any of them in there, they will corrupt you. Now, we could say, oh, they're not going to corrupt me, man. I'm deep. Well, he said, if you leave any of them in there, they will become as thorns in your sides and pricks in your eyes. They will harass you in the land until you be consumed. And 400 years later, God said this about them. He said, you are worse than the original inhabitants of the land. You have gone a-whoring after other gods. You commit spiritual adultery under every green tree, and you worship all of these sticks and stones that the people you ran out of the land, this is why they were destroyed, and you're doing the same thing. And God caused, well, the Assyrians came against the northern tribe, the ten tribes of Israel. They sent the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and carried away the southern tribe, Judah and Benjamin. And all because they disobeyed God and were rebellious. Now, in the New Testament today, we don't kill people because they're rebellious. If we did, well, I don't know what would happen. There wouldn't be very big churches today, I know that. But capital punishment would be still be right with the Lord. Now, people have a passion against, you know, any kind of killing today, any kind of capital punishment and so forth. Go to Joshua chapter 6 and verse 21. Joshua 6 and verse 21. Thus we will do to them, we will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swear unto them. These were the people who deceived Joshua by acting like they came from a far country. They were inhabitants of the land, and they were wicked and cruel. He let them live in that land because he, he made a covenant with them, and he should not have. But back to chapter 6. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now let me ask you a question. Was that fair? Was that okay? God could do that. He gave them the rules of war. I was in Deuteronomy 19 a while ago, but he gave them the rules of war in Deuteronomy 20 on how they should go in, how they should deal with this. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. And he never told them that Honoring him by cleaning out the land and, and getting rid of all the people was murder. They killed him, yes, but not with any feelings they had against him. They did not hate these people, and I wish we could just get rid of all of them. They didn't even know who they were. But God knew all about them, and he sent his people in to destroy these folks to get rid of all of them. 
But you see, God God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. A, a great example of that was when God told Abraham that I'm going to destroy Sodom. And he warned Lot. He said, will you destroy the city if there's only, if there's only five righteous? He said, no. So, but that was it. And then he goes in, he rescues Lot, Lot's wife and his daughters. And they come out of there and he said, we can't destroy the city until you're out of the area here. And they walked off. Then the Bible says that God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. He didn't destroy the just, he destroyed the unjust. Let me ask you a question. Is that fair? And remember, we're talking about a theocracy. These are not instructions on how we deal with things today. And if you caught a person in adultery then, they were stoned to death. And if there was deception going into marriage and a girl was supposed to be a virgin and it turned out that she wasn't, and there was a law about how to deal with that. And if she was accused of not being a virgin when she actually was, and then there was in the law about dealing with that. And there was laws about kidnapping. Anybody who kidnapped somebody could be, would be killed. Now, you can't do that today. I mean, the government can. We're not under a theocracy in America. We're under a form of human government. We can't do, I mean, we can't live the way they did in the Old Testament because we're not under that law anymore as a way of conduct. But we can take the spirit of the law and realize it just like the next one coming up, adultery. You may not have ever committed adultery, but if you have thought about it because you looked at somebody and you lusted after them, you're guilty, whether you're a man or a woman. Because God sees the hearts. And we're not legally free because I ain't never done that. I ain't killed nobody. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, and anger is not wrong. Jesus was angry once. God showed a lot of places in the Bible where his wrath was poured out. But it was righteous. Never was unjust for God to do what he did or for Jesus to be angry at, at hard people. But he never did anything wrong. And if he reached a judgment against somebody, then God was altogether fair and altogether right in whatever he did. He demonstrated the principle of saving the righteous people from, from not only Sodom, but also... How about Jericho? Did he save the righteous in Jericho? I didn't think any of them were. They walked around the city and it all fell flat. But there were some that were saved. Weren't there? Who was it? Rahab. Rahab and whoever she could get in her room. Whoever she could stuff in her. It didn't say there was a limit. But whoever was in her room, lead them out. Because they helped us and gave us information. So God, even in the destruction of Jericho, did not destroy Rahab. And she was an inhabitant of that wicked place. But we read all of this and we think, well, is it wrong? Is it wrong in that life for us in the New Testament to kill people? What if I'm in the army? What if I've taken the king's shilling to do the king's bidding? And they train me how to thrust through with the sword or the uh, bayonet. It takes me how to shoot right, how to get in good shape so I can outmaneuver my enemy. Am I any different today in the, as a Christian in the army than the Old Testament saints were when they came into Canaan's fair and happy lamb and God said, get rid of them, they're wicked people? Or could a soldier say, well, this wicked nation we're going up against, God is judging them and he's using us to judge them. I don't know if all of that is true or not about judging them. I don't know how that works. I'm not God. 
But I do know this, that in a New Testament, under a new covenant, when I ask myself the question, can I righteously kill another person in the name of the country? Could I join the army and take lives? And the answer is no. You should not. Now, where people are, what their understanding of this is between that person and God. Not everybody understands all this. I didn't until a few years ago. I thought you join, you join the army. We're the right. We're on the good side, and everybody we fight's the bad guys. Because you know you don't go into some foreign country to to shoot people because you have a thing against them. Your government trains you to do this, so you go in and whenever they pop up, you shoot them. It's like at the carnival. You just you just shoot them. I'm not mad at you. I just have a job to do. Bang, bye. Can you do that? Can a Christian do that? Because if he can do that, what about loving your enemies? About what do you do with that? Well, if they hit you on one cheek or shoot you on one side, I guess turn the other side. The new covenant's a totally different way of life. We learn what they did. We see how God felt about uncleanness and how God felt about sin and how God felt about rebellion and, and idol worshipers. We see from all of this in the Old Testament, how God felt about all of these people. When we come into the New Testament, Jesus says, now that's the way they did it. And what you saw was what you saw, and what you read was what you read. God was showing you that he is just and fair, and that he will not forever tolerate sin. Just like the days of the flood. The flood wasn't a comfortable thing to be in, and not everybody made it through the flood. And it was God's idea for it to happen like that. So judgment came in the flood. Judgment came upon a lot of places in the Bible. One time there they were fighting and they were about to lose and God caused fire to come from heaven. Even sent an angel once in the city and killed thousands of people. Again, we look at that and say, well, maybe we're supposed No. God is showing us what sin does to people and what God does to sin. And shares with us that if you live like that, the same thing will happen to you. If you don't want God to rule your thoughts and your mind and your life, like Romans chapter 1, if you don't want to have the knowledge of God in your life and live by that and trust in Him for your salvation, then you're taking your side against God by living the way you live. And in the end, you'll be judged. It won't be a very comfortable judgment either. I'll trust you with that. I think you know that anyway. But should we participate in the execution of a murderer in the New Testament? What if somebody that we know is angry at somebody because of something they said? Road rage is a good example. People that just somebody cut in front of you and it just ignited your anger to the place where in getting even with somebody, they, they died. Teaching them a lesson. Should we bring that person in here and, and then or take them out in a car lot there? Well, they're in our church, Judge. You don't have to worry about this, and we'll take care of this and take them outside in our car lot and stone them. Could we do that? We'd all go to jail if we did, because we can't do that in this government. Actually, the government that we're in and every form of human government that exists today since the theocracy of God before they got Saul as their first king, when you go all the way back since then, there has been no theocracy in the land. But we have always had in our hearts 
a place where God reigns. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. And in our society, if our government tells us to do something that we cannot with good conscience do because it would violate our relationship with God, then we say no. Now, we'll suffer the consequences and we won't cry about it because we took a stand. Is it possible that you could suffer persecution for righteousness' sake? What about all the enemies that are coming against us? I am not here as a Christian. I am not here to run the affairs of the state because the state cannot be run in a Christian way. You cannot run an unsaved society with saved principles. You cannot do that. But you can, in an unsaved, unregenerate society, you can live the Christian life. Now, this the unregenerate society that will persecute you, but this is part of their judgment that is coming. We as Christians are living in a, in a time in which the Bible says are the last days. Men's hearts shall fail them for fear, and there'll be all kinds of unclean and ugly things that we spoke of a while ago that are going to be happening. And, and we're here watching that take place seeing the evil that is coming up before us, the vulgarity on the media and in the news and TV. You know, none of that was permitted in the Old Testament. We're Christians. We don't permit that in our lives, not because we're under a law, but because of conviction. Are you with me? Because of the conviction of our heart. I have heard what the Lord has said to me in church. And the, my heart smites me, convicts me is a better word. When I hear something and I don't do it or I find myself unwilling to do it or trying to get ways around so I don't have to do it, my heart bothers me. You know, when you said something to somebody you shouldn't say, that's what this part of Scripture is about. You need to reconcile with that person. You don't have a right to hold grudges. You don't have a right to gossip and to say evil things about any, anybody, let alone kill them. Because God has taught us enough as I said in the Old Testament about how this works and the way it should work, that we don't want to cut any corners and do everything wrong and get his judgment upon us in this life. What do we do with him today if somebody in our church sins? Say commits adultery. They stoned him in the Old Testament. What do we do with him? Well, most churches ignore it. But if we ignore it, then we're allowing sin to fester in our midst. If we say anything about it, we're labeled in the community as a bunch of, what, right-wing legalists? If we as Christians, I'm talking about in the church, if we deal with sin today, not the way they did in the, in the Old Testament, but if we deal with sin today the way God tells us to deal with sin, even other churches would dislike you and talk about you. How about putting a person out of church? That's how we deal with it. An unrepentant sinner is put out of the church. He's not allowed to be in our fellowship. You should not fellowship with them so that they will, they will be ashamed of what they have done. Now, that's very seldom ever happened. We've had to put people out of here before, but there are so many people amongst us who made no distinction between them and them. They just run around with them. One time we're going fishing. He wants to go with us. Can he go? Well, you should know better than that. The answer is no. You can't keep somebody from going fishing, but not with us. Fellowship is off limits. That's New Testament. First Corinthians 5, you turn his flesh over. In some cases, in bad cases, you turn their flesh over to the devil. 
Hymenaeus and Alexander said, I have delivered them unto Satan. 1 Corinthians 5, this man cohabitating with his father's wife, give his flesh to the devil for destruction that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. Well, there are so many sins that are taking place in the church today. The church is doing very little about it. And we look at the world the way the world lives, and, and so much of the church is gravitating to the way the world lives. And I was born a long time ago, and I, I haven't gotten used to any of this new stuff. I haven't. Some of you that are 30 and under, you don't have a clue how much of a change has happened in America in the last 50 years. You don't even have a clue. It's so much. There was a time if you saw a man with another woman going somewhere, you'd call somebody. They'd deal with them. Things weren't tolerated. Teachers could actually firmly grab a student. Last year or two, I taught till the end. I taught to school in the shop class. I always made a paddle. I had plenty of them, but I'd make one so they'd know what it was for. And then a piece of maple about so long, like a fraternity paddle. I had one of them at home, too, but I didn't want anybody to steal it, so I just made a pattern off of it. The first time somebody messed up, we'd take them out in the hallway, leave the door cracked so they could hear this. And we would get a teacher to witness it. We would whack them good. I mean, whack them if they were big enough. Big old smarty like me, whack them good. Pow! Oh! Hush! Shut up! Pow! Do it again. Boy, they come back in like this. Now, today, if you do that, you're going over here to LaGrange for scholarship. <laughs> you get three hots and a cots over at LaGrange. For you out some uh, LaGrange is a prison not far from here. What's happened? What's happened to the change in all of our kids? Kids can sit up now and watch the same filth their parents watch. They can watch X-rated videos and movies. There's no limit to how sinful and nasty you can get. And Christians living in the same time are tempted by the same stuff, and we're being tested to see where our hearts are. And you give yourself into that stuff, the same judgment that they're going to get, you're going to get it too. I don't care if you go to church or not. Because God is just and fair. But this thing about killing is that, yes, they did that in the Old Testament. Yes, God commissioned it. Yes, God was with his people. Yes, God favored them. He sent his angel, even he himself. You know, the flood of brimstone and fire and the earth opened up and swallowed lots of people. But all of that was judgment against people. It was judgment against heathen people. How long do you suppose a righteous God will tolerate extreme wickedness on this earth? Now ask yourself, how long will God continue to tolerate the trends in America? When America no longer makes a distinction between the clean and the unclean. You read in Ezekiel 22, towards the end of Ezekiel 22, Describing in the whole chapter the vulgarity of the nation of Israel. How nasty they were getting. How vulgar and unclean they were. The things that they did. If you read those things, here's some of the moms that go, Brother Hamilton, can't you choose another word? Just reading the Bible, ma'am. Just reading the Scripture. It's in your lap too. And we read these kind of things. You know, the one where God said, I sought for a man among them who would stand before me on behalf of the land. 
couldn't find anybody. Everybody was too busy having a good time with our newfound freedoms. We're having fun now in church. We're not limited and restricted by some old legalistic religion. We don't have to, have to, have to, have to. Man, we're having fun. We're like, you know, we're getting out there having fun. Well, as God is going to judge the world and this country, everybody that lives that way will be judged along with them. There will be no complaints, no lawyer to represent you before God. All the records are being kept. He's in charge. That's the way it is. Let me ask you a question again I asked a while ago. Should Christians engage in carnal warfare or spiritual warfare? Are we still engaged in warfare? Yes, we are. But we're not in the kind of war that involves shooting people and killing people or destroying others' property. But our warfare is against principalities and powers. We pray for our government more than anybody else. If we didn't pray for government, I doubt that anybody would. Pray for our president. You say, I don't like our president. You got him as your president. Like a barber said to me one day over in Indiana, I'd get my hair cut. And uh, talking about politics, that, you know, that's barbershop stuff. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't agreeing with I should have kept my mouth shut, but I, you know, my mouth has got me in trouble my whole life. Ah, you can't do that. They say this or that. They say, well, who'd you vote for? I said, I didn't vote for anybody. See, so, so you didn't vote either way. No, no, I, I did not. That's not my call to vote. And oh, my, I'm, I, I spit in the floor. Well, I don't see what your opinion would matter. You shouldn't have any. You got no opinion in the matter if you don't vote. I said, I pay more taxes than you do. <laughs> that shut the whole, it shut it down. I don't know how much they pay, but I know I paid more in taxes than they did. Just because I don't vote. Who would I vote for? Which unregenerate would I approve of? I pray for them. They're just things and men that come along. They are in God's timing and in God's place. And God uses men. But that's not my role to do that any more than I would have the job in a prison of pulling the switch on somebody dying. We studied that back in ethics when we taught on that, about the Christian's role in society, that our role is very limited in society, what we're free to do and what we, what we can do. Because we have to honor God with everything that we do, whether it's loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, or taking abuse and not fighting back. They take, if they take you to court and sue you for this, give them that also. There's never been a people like that. There was none in the Old Testament, and the only ones that could be like this are a few Christians in the church. The church is militant, isn't it? Church has not only voter registration drive, but the church is out there with defending the country, the Constitution in one hand, the Bible in the other. God, guns, and guts made America. God didn't give us the liberty to do that. That's not what we do. We're not here to defend the country. There will be those who will. God has always had that, but it's not our job. We pray for these people. They should be glad that we do. Again, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of good young men and women tonight in the military doing what their heart convicts them of, of doing. 
Maybe they've never been taught. Maybe if they were taught, they didn't get it, didn't see it, and they're doing what they believe. Now, I'm not against that. That's Romans 14. But I believe when light comes, you, you change. You make an adjustment. And I'm glad for the people who give us freedom. I'm glad for the fact that God has protected us in this country, that we have saved most of the world from destruction with military might. But as Christians, that's not my job. Now, it's getting quiet in here, but that's all right. That's not my job. The Bible tells me to be a peacemaker. The United Nations never was and never will be. It's just a holiday and fun time for people from all over the world to come to them. I wish they'd build it in Haiti. I wish they'd put the United Nations in Haiti or Darfur over in Africa. Just build it somewhere else besides America, where they don't have streets and restaurants and malls, parking tickets. Let them, let them go somewhere else. What about those that harm us? So what do we do to them? Somebody hits you in the eye, what do you do? Well, you take their eye out, not in the New Testament. You take evil. You accept evil. People do you wrong, you let them do you wrong. You trust God. Do you avenge not yourselves? Isn't that what the Bible said? Because it's a new covenant. It's a new way of living, the way that God wants us to live. We treat our enemies with love. How do you do that? Well, put your finger again here, wherever you are, and go to Luke chapter 6. This is how Jesus said we deal with our enemies. Luke chapter 6. In verse 27, But I say unto you which hear, Love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. What about the terrorist? What about right now, right now, today, in light of what our Lord said today with people who want to kill you, what is your response to them? Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. And to him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And unto him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of you. And him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. You Likewise, as you would men do unto you, you do unto them. And if you do good to them, which do good to you, what thank have you? For even sinners do that with each other. And verse 34, and if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you yet? For sinners also do the same thing to sinners, to receive as much again. Look at these three verses. But love your enemies and do good and lend. What does love your enemies mean? You may not right now, you may not right now know who they are. There will probably come a time it will be clear. And then the challenge is on. Love your enemies. You say, well, what are we going to do if there's a major word in Christianity which is largely neglected? It's called faith. Faith is also trust in God. Do you think that God who gave us these instructions, if we trust in Him, that we're, we're going to wish we hadn't have? It'll be just the opposite. If you know you should trust in Him, but you take matters into your own hands instead of trusting Him, you will wish you had have trusted Him. What harm can come to you if God is for you and on your side? If God be for us, what? Who can be against us? But you have to believe that. You have to believe that because it's not for us to kill them. Verse 36, be you therefore merciful 
as your Father also is merciful. And judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Is it possible that as Christians, if we will live right, that no evil shall befall us? That a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you, Psalm 91. Is that possible? Then why is it as Christians, through the centuries, through the last many, many, many decades, why is it that with so much scholarly attention given to things in the Bible, theologians have written so many books and the Puritans and all the things that they wrote and all the details, how is it that this seems to not have been emphasized? That you must trust the Lord. You know, I can't say, well, like Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, he had a Bible study in all the cities. He put the best teachers he had, the priests that knew the most. They had all of these gatherings throughout Judah and Benjamin, just various groups. And he gave all their names, and they all got together. And all Judah, not most of them, they didn't keep a few sentries out there to warn them if the enemy was coming. It says all Judah got together to learn the ways of God. Now, why weren't they invaded? Because that's a negative thinking that's in the church. They say, well, if we do that, everybody will just run over us. Well, they didn't then. The Bible said the fear of God came on all the nations round about them, and no man durst make war with them. Why do you suppose the people who had a chance to come upon Bible studies and kill them all with their swords and spears, how come they could not sneak upon them and kill them? Is it possible that God was protecting them? Could He do that for you? We learned that in the Old Testament, that that's what God did when people did it exactly right. They even won a battle and had three days of carrying away the spoil without even fighting. That same group. God filled their heart with so much trust and faith in Him that when three armies came against them, they didn't even get their sword out because somebody prophesied, you don't have to. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They didn't say, I don't know about that. I, God, my mother didn't raise me as a dummy. I, how do I know that'll work? Not a one of them. They say that today. They didn't say it then. Churches are full of people that talk that way now because they're negative. They, can't, they just can't see what God is saying. But this bunch did because they were taught people. They didn't have a Bible. And they walked out there in front of all them people and started praising the Lord. And God caused maybe a million soldiers. I don't know how many. Asa, his daddy, Jehoshaphat's daddy, faced a million Ethiopians, and they were destroyed. But they had to fight them. But in this battle, they did not fight. No soldier died. No mother was crying. Everybody lived. And an entire armies of three nations, three nations were destroyed that day, and they destroyed each other because of the power of God over humans. How do you believe that God has power over people? It is in the hand of God to do as He pleases. Remember we taught on, on that? God rules from the heavens. 
Let not the thing form say to the thing that formed it, What doest thou? For God does as he pleases in the kingdom of men. And if he sent all these soldiers out there for us to read about it, and they came to destroy these people who weren't even going to lift a fingernail clipper against them, and then God caused them to kill each other, did he not do that to show us in the New Testament that he will do the same thing again? They did not need to fight, did they? They didn't need to fight. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the people came by and that was it. Let's go back to anger because that's what this whole thing is about. Matthew chapter 5. Anger is an emotion that we all have, that we've all had to deal with and all had a part of. We've all been angry. If If you're a parent, you know what angry is. If you're married, you probably know what angry is. You know, a parent, though, has the emotion of anger against children, but not with a desire to harm them. Maybe make them feel bad on their backside. And yet today, I don't, I don't know how many people even think that uh, that's right. I don't know what's going to happen when you that are under 30, when you're my age, if the world's still here. I don't know what's going to be. I guess it'll be beyond beyond rotten. But I do suspect that God is going to judge this whole globe before then. I do believe that judgment is coming. Because as the Bible says, when you see this coming to pass, in the last days, evil men and seducers, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're seeing that today. As it was in the days of this, or as you saw happen then, so shall it be in the end. Men's hearts are wicked and evil, less and less cautious, less and less concerned, taking things for granted, making up things and preaching that, and people think that's okay. Yes, God is going to judge. In fact, judgment is going to begin at the house of God. Your Bible says that. It's going to start with us. You know, I would like to have it so right, not as a status thing, but I'd like to have it truly and honestly with pure convictions to have it life so right that I would not be judged in this end time. I think judgment is a horrible thing. I think the wrath of God. The Bible defines God as a consuming fire. And if you follow the footnotes about that, it's always judgment. The Bible says in Psalm 78, upon these people that were just complaining, whimpering, and whining, that God was wroth. We don't use the word wroth much unless that's your name. God was angry. God's wrath came into play because people so ignored what God was saying, so ignored His Word, set aside what He expected and required from them, had their way at it, complained, and just like when they were in the wilderness and the earth opened up and swallowed up so many people that were just so nasty. God's a God of judgment. I don't care what you say. He'll judge sin. He's going to judge sinners. And when God sees us angry and, and we want to hurt people, then he'll judge us too. 
Anger. Anger. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 that he was in an assembly and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were all sitting there. And there was a man in their midst that says in Mark 3 that had a withered hand. And they all wondered what Jesus was going to do. In verse 1, there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Now, they were legalists. Jesus picked corn on the Sabbath day. Remember they said, you're a, you're a lawbreaker? He said, you don't understand the law. Verse 3, And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They held their peace. And notice verse 5. This is Jesus. And when he had looked on them with what? When he had looked on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thy hands. Let me ask you all a question. If he was grieved then, if God was grieved then with hard hearts, how grieved would he be today? Now, he didn't judge these people there. He was grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. Let me tell you something about hardness, just a glancing moment. How many people use excuses all the time for why they, want, they don't want to do what God says? Why is there so much excuse-making? Well, then I couldn't. I, why? Is it not because there's a problem with a man's heart? God doesn't accept that. He said, well, let me go first bury my father. You know what Jesus said? He said, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. You, you preach the kingdom. Wow. Is that narrow? That's what he meant. You come and you follow me. God's anger is seen throughout the, throughout the uh, Scripture. Even in the New Testament, how about the money changers in Matthew 21? Did he go in there and say, now, boys, come on now, get this stuff up. Take these birds and get them out of here. They were selling stuff for, you know, for this atonement and all of that. Now, come on, boys, now stop this. They were in there making money off religion, and he ran them out. I don't know how much they lost on that deal, but he overturned their tables. And he ran them out. And somebody said he had a cat of nine tails and he was whipping them just bam. I doubt that. He might have had one. I don't know if he whopped any of them or not. I guess he could have if he had wanted to. I know that when Ezra saw people dragging their feet in, in the Old Testament, he, uh, he grabbed them by the beard and yanked some hair out. That old boy was sincere about what he thought they ought to do. I'll give him that. But the Bible said that Jesus overturned their tables and he ran the money changers out. Paul spoke about being angry. There's all through the Bible. If there's an anger issue, don't sin. Remember Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. Paul wrote this. Ephesians 4 verse 26. He said, be angry and sin not. You remember that? Be angry. And sin not. Now, that would sound like it's saying, okay, be angry. Get up every day and be angry about something. 
And then see how much of it you can go through without sinning. But I looked through one translation. I'm not trying to pick and choose which one I like the best. But there's one that said it in a way that it's easier for me to understand what this means. We're not commissioned here to be angry, but anger over many things is is common to man. Whether it's traffic at a slow food restaurant, phone calls, whatever it is. There's a lot of things that make us angry. Can't find this, can't find Some people's anger is not very well controlled. They throw fits and say things they shouldn't say and make a scene about that. But in Ephesians 4.26, he said, Be ye angry and sin not. Now, I like the Williams translation. It says, If angry, beware of sinning. And let not your irritation last until the sun goes down. Well, I like that. If you're angry, don't sin. If you're angry, don't sin. Now, you see, I, I guess my, my continual problem of dealing with is traffic. It seemed like up here, you go up our Finchville Road up here to the traffic light. You can still turn right on red after you stop. And if there's nobody coming, not even all the way to Simpsonville, if you can look back that way and ain't a soul coming, it is all right to pull out and turn right. And then some of them are so used to sitting at a traffic light because it's always red that when it turns green, they don't move. And I find myself, I did it today and I had to repent again. Come on! Then I thought, shut up, Hamilton. See, that was a form of anger, but I didn't desire to, for these people to die from big rock fall from heaven and in their lives. Nothing like that. It's just that we all have to face it. You have to be careful. Cain didn't kill Abel because it was just a bad day. He was angry. He had a lot of things that the way he saw what Abel did and what he offered to God and evaluated that and whatever was in his mind about that, he was so angry that he wanted to eliminate that. So Cain, Cain killed Abel. Many men have died in a moment of rage because they caught their wife or their husband in an adulterous affair or heard many times about little league ball games where people get in a fight and one goes out in the car and gets in a gun and comes back and shoots somebody over a call third strike. Or he was out and the referee said he was not out and what, whatever it was, or the umpire didn't play my kid and an argument ensues and you know men and all their testosterone, you got to be a man. Even though I'm a deacon in the church, I'm a man. You mess with me, I'll hit you right square in the mouth. Where's that at? And yet, that's the temptation. You're used to it. You see it on the TV. People talk about it. The admiration today is for the tough guys. The guys that know how to duke it out and fight and stuff like that. The guys that are mean and big. And yet, we hate bullies because it's bullies that make life miserable at school for other kids. Somebody can insult you. Your kid made a failing grade. You got a B plus plus extra plus, but not an A. And you're so angry with that teacher because it's the teacher's fault. It's always the teacher's fault or your wife. You know, I always tell Bonnie, I'm going to blame you for everything because you take it so well. So in home, if we can't find something or something doesn't go right or it's raining, well, it's her fault. She doesn't mind. So I just blame her. But anger leads to murder. 
Anger is a condition whereby people are often given to murder. Some people have a much greater control on their passions than do others, but some people, they can't handle it. They just get mad over anything. I've found when I was used to work on my own stuff out in the, my little shop all the time, I had a impact wrench. Now, most of you women know what an impact wrench is. That's when you go down to garage and you hear something go, you know, one of those things, like that. Well, at least appreciate the sound effects anyway. So you buy one, you take it home because you don't want to go to the garage, jack your car up, you got a nice jack down at Sam's, you jack it up, and then get those off there and you put them back on. And one day you really need to get it done in a hurry. And you go, burp, What's wrong with this thing? Let's squirt a little oil in it. Burp, burp. Here it comes. Here it comes. Burp, burp. And you take that air hose off. <laughs> See, a little picture's worth that. Now, you wouldn't do that. I did it once. And about five years later, when I was cleaning out the garage, I thought, I wonder if that thing's still... I looked under this shelf, and there it was. It was hammered dead laying right under those shelves. It's supposed to go like that. Let me ask you a question. Could God allow my impact wrench to go to test me? So I could say, well, if it's not going to work, Take the hose off. I'll just go downtown and get another one. Praise the Lord. <laughs> just greasy hands. Just go wash your greasy hands and go in and wash your face and comb your hair and go to town and give them 50 bucks and get another one. Praise the Lord. Go home. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I wish we were geared like that. I wish all of us were. But the fact is that we let lots and lots of things dominate us in our lives. Things which, if they don't go my way, I am angry. And when I am angry, I am offensive to God if my anger is not warranted. Now, Jesus looked on people and there could be anger there and all that. Yes, 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 yes. Go back to Matthew 5, look at verse 22 quickly. Name-calling. Name, name calling. When you're mad at people, when you're mad at somebody or you're angry about something, whether it's the ball game you're watching on the tube or at the park, and somebody's not doing as they should, it's so easy to call them stupid. Maybe that's what raka means. But how about the word fools? How about the word fool? Fool just means somebody that has no delight in understanding. Proverbs 18 just has no delight in understanding. Is not willing to learn. It's just the word folly and fool go together. The same, similar, similar words in the, uh, in the Hebrew. But when you get to calling people names, there's some names you just, there's some things you should learn as a Christian that you don't do. We are not to describe people in derogatory 
humiliating terms. Now, I guess we've all done it. And if you haven't, I have. I did it for you. So you don't have to now. That, that tool I had, its name was, I gave it a name, was ignorant and stupid. And it landed under the bench and it remained there until I took it to the Wadi Dump. But there's no right, that we have no right, nobody in this room has a right to refer to another human being in humiliating and derogatory terms. It's not wrong to use the word fool. Jesus used the word fool. Oh, fools and slow of understanding. Remember that? Oh, fools and slow of understanding. Paul used it in Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Foolish describing the fact that instead of taking God at his word, you're looking for something else. That is foolish. A fool would do that because it leads to nothing. And you're following nothing when you're a fool or you're being foolish. That doesn't mean we go around and call people fools because sometimes the word fool is said in such a context that it's an expression of your irritated feelings against the person. Yeah, you, know, you ignoramus. We shouldn't do that. And I've done that. Now, I'm forgiven. I'm just telling you what I've done so you'll so you feel better about yourself, I guess. We've called a lot of people a lot of names in our life. We've described a lot of things and a lot of people with bad names. We've called presidents bad, bad stuff. That's always bad. We're Christians. We keep our mouths shut. If we can't say something good, we say nothing at all. I hope we're not too old to learn that. Or we, we're, If we're just now getting that message, great. But name-calling is never good. You know, the some of the curse words that people use referring to a person's mother are very vile words. That's a very vile thing to say about any woman who gives birth to a child whether she was bad mother or not. It's a terrible thing to call a woman. And yet it's common today. Nobody thinks very much about it. But it's a terrible thing for somebody to do that. And if you find, as he goes on in this chapter, say, if you have said things to people and you've offended people, and you come before the Lord, you, and you remember there that somebody has ought against you, you need to go to them. You need to go to them and get it right. Because, you see, we relate to people. Our place in this world is to be unto others as a kind of person that they could relate to, be friends with, trust in. We can't make enemies out of each other. We turn our cheek. We trust God. We do all of these kind of things because we're Christians. We want to do right. We want to do right. Now, next time is adultery. That is as common today. It's on TV. It's everywhere. Nobody has a problem with it except God. We'll deal with that the next time. Lust and adultery. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to turn us from being angry people with loose mouths to the kind of people that as the psalmist said, we set a watch before our mouth and guard the door of our lips, lest we sin against you. For you have given us a way to live, a reason to live this way. Help us to take that to heart and honor you. 
ask you to bless those that are here tonight. Bless our understanding of your word. Make us to understand it as you want it to be understood so that we can live it with pure hearts in this vile age that we're in. I ask you to bless this to all the people in Jesus' name. Amen.